Particularly if you are trying to deceive the repatriation board that you are sick. Not killing yourself first is is a good plan. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at Lieutenant H.E. Stewart, ultimately an MC, but at the time attached to the Intelligence Corps of the 9th Australian Division. Now, sadly, I've had a look at this as much as I can, and I don't know any more about him. I'm going to assume he's an Australian because he's attached to the Australian division, but that's not necessarily so. I couldn't find anything about him on the archives in Australia. I can't find his initial. And because he's in the intelligence corps and he's attached to a division, he doesn't really seem to come up. They've mentioned that they have intelligence staff attached to them, but there's no like record book that I can actually find that gives me any details about him or his job. Yes, intelligence don't tend to be particularly open about the details of who does their work. Exactly. Whether that's in the army or military intelligence organisations. Indeed. They keep very quiet. Absolutely. And that was frustrating for me because, as we know, we like to try and look into the backgrounds of our people and where they come from and hopefully what makes them tick because Mm -hmm. it is an interesting escape. In fact, it is an interesting capture Mm -hmm. overall. Because it seems to be a capture brought about effectively by the Germans being much more efficient and organised than anything that the Allies were putting together at the time, which is sad to say, but there we go. So uh, this capture is in April 1941 in Libya, and he was captured as uh, part of a convoy of generals that were moving away from the intelligence centre because of the mass uh, movement of German troops. There wasn't a huge amount of detail of why they were moving. So I thought probably the best thing was to actually look into what was going on at the time. And we have covered a lot of things like Crete and mm-hmm. Tobruk and things like that. This is obviously slightly before Tobruk because they were retreating towards it. Mm-hmm. But I thought I'd cover a little bit more about it. So assuming he is Australian and assuming he came over from Australia, the 9th Division was formed in the United Kingdom in late 1940. And it consisted of two infantry brigades that had been formed in Australia and dispatched to Britain to defend against a possible invasion. They didn't go over to France but they did stay over here and they were under the command of a Major General Henry Winter. Now Winter became ill in January 1941 and he was replaced by a commander called Leslie Moorshead. They were then relocated to the Middle East in February 1941. Now as a sign of the sort of chaos that was going on following their deployment to the Middle East all of the Australian divisions underwent a reorganisation and it was decided to send some more established and experienced brigades off to Greece which meant that the less experienced and less ready for action brigades, which is down here, down as the 20th and 26th, were basically left in Libya for the impending conflict that was coming up there. They were quite short of equipment as well. A lot had been dispatched to Greece. So they were very short of machine guns, mortars, anti-tank guns and carriers. So it's not really setting them up for a good defensive position should the Germans decide to push on through Libya. So by March 1941, so a month before the capture, it was becoming increasingly clear that the Germans were planning to launch a major offensive. And the result of that was that Leslie Moorshead ordered his 20th Brigade to withdraw from the frontier and move 160 miles away from the advancing Germans. So already a fairly big retreat towards Benghazi. That offensive actually started on the 24th of March and it forced 
the Allied units even further back, and it took another two days for the 26th Brigade to take up positions in the west near the coast. So already it's effectively a mass retreat, and they're just having to keep on draw back, and draw back, and draw up, and draw back. Now, being in the intelligence corps assigned to this, you would have thought that our man would be fairly up on what's what's going on and being able to advise. But effectively, you get to a point where within a few days, those battalions are right at the rear. And by the afternoon of the 4th of April, the Germans actually started shelling the Allies directly in their positions that they were encamped with. And this was a, a battalion that was actually spread over nearly seven miles. So that's a fairly thin defensive barrier that's been put up there. But it meant the Germans started absolutely flooding the area with personnel, tanks, lorries. They were fairly lightly armoured, but they were there en masse. Because of that, they were able to push on quite quickly. And as a result, the 9th Division was actually ordered to fall back to Tobruk. This was causing a huge amount of confusion. And the headquarters and the commanding officers and the intelligence team, including our man, captured during the part of this retreat. So if we move to his report, actually, which has some detail in it, and it has some interesting people that come up in it as well, I'll read from what he had to say. So he says, I was captured near Derna Aerodrome in Libya on the 7th of April 1941. Whilst travelling in a staff car, I was following a convoy in which were Generals Neem, O'Connor and Coombe. Now, these are three very interesting gentlemen. So they all served in the First World War. Neem was actually a First World War VC, and between the two wars, he was Olympian, and he won gold medals at the Olympics in the 1920s. A fairly fit man, but it also means that we're actually looking at someone in their mid to late 50s, as was O'Connor was in his mid to late 50s, and was Coombe. So I'm wondering if actually these three guys, being very senior generals down there at the time, were actually some of the oldest ones on the front. But I believe O'Connor in particular has come up before because he was involved with some tunnelling, one of which who got out was Hargest, which mm-hmm. I think you covered in a previous series. Series 2. Yeah. Going back to his report, he says, At a crossroads, the convoy was misdirected by a military policeman, whom we later suspected of being a German in British uniform. That's quite brazen. Mm. If the Germans had advanced enough to go, hmm, we can control this crossroads, let's put someone in and pretend to be someone else. I imagine it could equally be the mass confusion by the fact that the Germans are advancing in all ports and you're having to retreat to the sea. Yes, I generally tend to go down the assumption that it's a screw-up rather than a conspiracy. I'd like to think so. He says, The driver of the first vehicle told me that the man on duty at his particular crossroads did not speak to him at all, but merely waved him on. While the convoy was passing through a wadi, it was ambushed by two German armoured carriers, two anti-tank guns, and about 30 men. It's quite a substantial little holding Mm. out there. I was dragged out of my car by two Germans, one with a revolver and the other with a Tommy gun. We were kept two days in the desert, during which a German panzer division came up. We were then sent to Derna, where we were housed in very bad conditions, that doesn't surprise me, in an old barracks. We next had an unpleasant trip to Benghazi, during which Italian civilians threw stones at us and spat on us. Accommodation was bad at Benghazi, and the daily ration per man was one tin of bully beef and one biscuit. Now, that's better than the very thin soup and potatoes that we've occasionally seen, but that's still not much. Not, not much better either. I mean, that, that's not going to do wonders for your constitution. No, and we're talking April in Libya. It's not going to be particularly cool either, is it? It's not the most pleasant living conditions, as he says. We were under Italian control. From Benghazi, we were sent by truck, a journey of four and a half days to Tripoli, and from there to a transit camp, where our food consisted of coffee in the morning, soup at midday, soup at night, 
and a loaf of bread per day. I can't imagine it was particularly thick and nutritious soup either. No, and coffee is a diuretic. Exactly. So again, I think by this time where we're looking at start of May, so he's effectively been a month in captivity and he's moving around on absolutely minimum rations. Mm. He says, on the 4th of May, we embarked from Tripoli for Naples, where we were sent by special train to Sulmona. We walked from the railway station to the camp, a barracks built during the last war by Austrian prisoners of war. So having arrived in Solmona, which is also known as Campo 78, he states that he came to the conclusion that escape from Solmona itself was impossible and decided to get myself moved by feigning sickness. Now I actually looked into this and Campo 78 is about 2,000 feet above sea level in the hills above Solmona, the town of Solmona. Mm-hmm. So it is, if not quite remote, it's not in a very hospitable location in that sense. You know, It's well up into the hills in fairly central Italy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely surprised that he came to that conclusion. It wasn't a particularly friendly or hospitable location to place a prisoner war camp and it certainly would not have been hospitable towards making escape efforts. No, no. So, as he states, he decided to try and get himself moved from there by feigning sickness. He put his plan to the escape committee and managed to get their approval on his plan. On the advice of Captain Ryan, who was an Australian doctor, he decided to pretend that he was suffering from kidney stones, a disease which he was informed could not be detected by x-ray treatment. Now, initially, he didn't report the sickness to the Italians till he had been in bed for a couple of weeks, and during that time, he feigned the symptoms of the disease so as to deceive the British officers and, through them, the Italian medical officers. Now, kidney stones are notoriously painful, and he says, As part of the deception, I had to yell for about four hours a day, and I used to be in bed for three or four days and then up for two days. After I reported sick, I had two morphia injections from the Italians, which almost killed me. Wow. Yeah. Which actually isn't all that surprising given that... He's yelling in pain. Yeah. So they morphine him up. Yeah. There's a there's a deeper story there, isn't it? The almost killed me. Yes. But then equally, there's nothing actually wrong with him. So putting two morphine injections into a perfectly healthy man is not going to do wonders for him No, either. cognitively. Yes, <laughs> indeed. He then goes on to say, having almost been killed by the Italians, Captain Ryan, the previously mentioned Australian doctor, then stated that he would take over from the Italian doctors and from then on he had no more injections. Interesting. Good plan. Smart move. Particularly Smart if you are trying to deceive the repatriation board that you are sick, not killing yourself first is a, is a good plan. It's a good plan, yeah. So having managed to convince them that there was something wrong with him, he was sent from Solmona to an Italian military hospital at Chieti, which is about 40 kilometres northeast of Solmona. Now, there was a guard of 10 sentries around this building as there were 12 British, 2 French and 20 Greek wounded prisoners of war that were awaiting the mixed medical commission for consideration for repatriation. Now, initially he had one thorough medical examination by an Italian doctor who went over his whole body and dictated a report of 25 pages to the clerk, which seems extremely detailed. Yes. But he does say the medical examination was thorough. Now, I quite like his wording here because he states... I impressed him by screaming when he touched the spot on my right side. I don't quite know what he means by impressed, but presumably it had the desired effect. So he was x-rayed twice, but on neither occasion did it identify any form of kidney stones. 
Nonetheless, the Italian major who had done the initial thorough examination stated that in view of the pain on his right side, he would be detained for observation. And so five days later, the mixed medical commission, which consisted of two Swiss doctors and one Italian, arrived. And he was examined with one Swiss doctor advising them to put down for repatriation, but Stuart declined this offer. Really? Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. No explanation why. Okay. Beyond possibly he just wanted to escape rather than be repatriated. Okay. Maybe he assumed that because he wasn't actually ill, he wouldn't be repatriated and therefore he was more interested in being fit, healthy and able to escape rather than trying to rely on conning them that he was unwell when he wasn't. Also, I'm not sure how kidney stones is your ticket home, given that repatriation was only for the very sickest, and effectively incurable. Yeah, unable to take up arms was yes. the criteria, wasn't it? Yeah, basically. So during this time, he was finding it difficult to plan his escape from the hospital as it was extremely well guarded. Nonetheless, he had help from a sergeant pilot, Davis of the RAF, who was himself awaiting repatriation. Excellent. And Sergeant Davis was responsible for helping them check up on the movements of the guards. Because, of course, if you've got a guard pattern, you can then start planning gaps in that pattern and identify opportunities for escape. Mm Mm-hmm. So after he'd been in hospital for 12 days, on the 30th of September, Sergeant Davis came to him in the afternoon and said that he now had the timetable of the guards confirmed and suggested that that evening would be the perfect opportunity to escape. On the evening of the 30th of September 1941, at 19.30 hours, he put his plan into execution. So there were two other airmen who were assisting him. One of them engaged the guard in conversation at the end of the corridor while another stood outside the latrine while Sergeant Davis and Stuart went in. Sergeant Davis then helped him to pull down the window of the latrine, which was on the second floor, and Stuart managed to slide down a drainpipe to the ground. The guard was about five yards to the right of Stuart with his back to him. So he walked along the side of the building and made his way into a garden which was out of sight of the guard. From the garden he jumped the wall which was about four feet high and found himself on the street outside. So for this escape he'd managed to pull together actually a fairly substantial escape kit. So for clothes he had a pair of trousers which were, he says, very dark khaki which certainly at night time would be perfectly fine. A civilian shirt which he'd bought during his first few months in Solmona when they were allowed to exchange civilian clothes. A Macintosh which he exchanged for a greatcoat with another officer while in Solmona and also a jumper from a Red Cross parcel. So a woolen jumper. He also had a map of the Italian Swiss frontier which was done in the camp and given to him by the escape committee. So again we're seeing the impact of the escape committee in being able to build up a substantial escape kit. Fantastic. And 300 lira, which was more than he required, which had also been given to him by the escape committee. And an identity card, which had been made in the camp by two officers and, again, given to him by the escape committee. So having found himself on the street outside the hostel in Chieti, he found that there was a train leaving for Milan almost at once, and so he went and got a ticket. He then asked someone where the Milan train was leaving from and was directed to a platform, which he got to, but it was not the train he had been intending to take, but a much slower omnibus train. Nonetheless, he got on this train, and the journey to Milan involved a change at Bologna. Now, Bologna is about 370 kilometres away from Chieti, so... Good distance having, having already reached Bologna, yeah, you're right, he's already made a fair distance. And conveniently, someone had left a fascist cap in the train, which he may or may not have pilfered. 
While on this train, identity papers were not asked for and no one spoke to him. However, he did hear two Italian passengers complaining about the food situation and saying that everything was being sent to Germany, which is an intriguing insight into the morale of the Italians. Because at this stage, they... Yeah, we're only September 41, aren't we? Yeah, there's still another nearly two years until the armistice and everything that happened in the run-up to the armistice to turn the Italians against Mussolini and the Axis Mm. agreement. So it's very early for morale to be that low, given how long it would then take for that to be enacted. I suppose it's a couple of months after Germans have opened up the war with Russia, so I wonder if impacts upon supplies meant that they were having to feed in from elsewhere. Mm, I would have thought so. So he arrived in Milan at around about 20 to 5 that evening. Now Milan's actually a further 230 kilometres from Bologna, so he's covered 600 kilometres by train. That's excellent. In one day. So he's really covered a fair distance. And of course, more importantly, Milan is both in the far north of Italy and not a million miles away from the Swiss frontier. He's in in striking distance. Yeah, exactly. There's an absolutely wonderful detail that he says because upon arriving in Milan train station, he got himself a haircut. Oh, brilliant. Which is just, it's a small touch, but it's just that it goes back to what we've discussed before about things like shaving, Mm. doing the normal things to fit in and assimilate and look like you are meant to be there. I mean, who would look for a prisoner of war in a barbershop? Exactly. And he's got Lira to burn. So having got himself this haircut, he then stayed in the buffet until 9 o'clock that night when he then got a train to Como, which is a further 50 kilometres north, arriving in Como at 10.30 that evening. Now, once he'd arrived in Como, he went to the bar and saw a man whose name had been given to him by a French prisoner of war in Salmona. However, this man denied all knowledge of the French prisoner of war. So Stuart then said that he was an escaped French prisoner of war, but the man in the bar would not promise to help him beyond saying that he could return to the bar later and gave him a name of a hotel that would be reliable. So Stuart then went to the hotel and his identity card was accepted and he filled out a registration form staying the night in the hotel. Now, I know we, we say it every time, but again, the access to money gives him access to trains, which has then got him 600 kilometres away, well out of the immediate search range. And he's now able to stay in the hotel in relative comfort and security. More than that, hotels do require acceptably good papers, identity papers. So clearly the forgeries that he's got are also of exceptionally high standard. Yeah. Which shows how important the escape committee was to successful escapes and the resources that they could gain access to and thus provide to prisoners of war in order to help them escape. So the next morning, so we're now on to the 2nd of October, he walked to Ponte Castle and managed to get there without encountering any police or frontier guards. Now, Ponte Castle is very close to the frontier, the Swiss frontier. Okay. And after lunching in a small restaurant there, he followed a road running northeast along the frontier. Now, while walking along that road, he was stopped by a guard and had to show his identity card. And from where he was stopped by this guard, he could see that the frontier was in a dry riverbed with a high wire fence with bells at intervals of a yard. And the fence was also guarded by black-shirted militia and Alpini guards at intervals of 20 yards. Now, the importance of the bells is actually quite significant. Hmm. Because, of course, if you try to scale a wire fence... It can be noisy, but if they're covered in bells, bells, Mm -hmm. even if you try it at night, and he may well have decided to try and come back at night, it basically negates any serious opportunity to try and scale the wire because, of course, the bells would alert the guards, Mm -hmm. even during nighttime. Now, to some extent, it was actually quite useful for him to be stopped by this guard because, of course, it enabled him the opportunity to reconnoitre the frontier. 
And he states, seeing no possibility of crossing the frontier at that time, I returned to Como by bus. And having arrived there, he says, I had my photograph taken by a street photographer at the lakeside of Como, because of course, Lake Como. Lovely. It is very nice. What a lovely keepsake. Indeed. And it was also so that if he was recaptured, he could prove to the Italians where he had been and how far he had got. And he also went to a cinema. Now, we also, again, see cinemas appearing regularly because it's a great way of killing a couple of hours in pitch dark where no one's looking at you or able to recognise you. And again, it's a perfectly normal activity to pursue as well, going back to what we said about going to the barbershop, who's looking for a prisoner of war in the cinema. He then returned to Monte Chiasso by bus, arriving there at 7 o'clock that evening and stayed the night in a small hotel where his identity card was sent to the local police office and returned as correct. So again, this confirms he's now had his papers checked three times by two hotels and one border guard and every time it's passed successfully. So these are clearly a very, very high standard of forgery that he's been given. So the next morning at 11.30 in the morning, so we're now on to the 3rd of October, he set out for Monte Olimpino, a hill to the south of Ponte Chiasso. And he followed a steep path running east over a railway tunnel. Now this path took him quite close to the frontier on which was another 12 foot high wire netting fence with small bells located at every yard interval. There were also sentry boxes every 100 yards but these were empty and dusty as though never used. So again he's kind of reconnoitering the locality and identifying potential weaknesses for being able to enter Switzerland. It's also quite useful escape intel Yes, for this to be sent back into camps. So after waiting about a quarter of an hour, which is more than enough time for a sentry guard to make themselves known, he climbed a tree and shinned over the fence, making a great deal of noise. But of course, he's already checked to see if there's any guards around, Mm. so he's not too worried about making that noise. Whereas the previous day, when he saw the wire fence with the bells on top, he states that there were black-shirted militia and Alpine troops located every 20 yards. So shinning over the fence and making a lot of noise wasn't an option then. It is now because he knows there's no guards. Yeah. So he's done quite well in being able to identify a weakness in the frontier security. So having made his way into Switzerland, he asked an old woman the way to the Swiss town of Chiasso, because there's a town called Chiasso on the Swiss side, as well as Ponte Chiasso on the Italian side. I see. Okay. Now, he did not immediately give himself up to the police in Chiasso as he'd been previously informed in the camp that the Swiss would potentially hand them back to the Italians if they were caught just over the frontier. So in Chiasso, we see a wonderful return of an old escape trope where he stole a bicycle and cycled along the main road to Lugano. Oh, we haven't had bicycle theft in ages. This is excellent. Welcome back. I, I, it's, it's been needed. Stuart, but, you stepped up to the mark. But he did it in a neutral country. <laughs> yeah. In fact, actually, that's a valid point because we do see bicycle theft quite regularly and we love a bicycle theft. So absolutely wonderful trope of the escape narrative and so the escape much, theme. Yeah. What we've never seen before is a bicycle stolen in a neutral country. And a kudos to Stuart on managing to achieve a first within what is actually a very common act within the overall escape narrative. (laughs) I mean, Uh, we don't support bicycle theft normally, obviously. Obviously not. But obviously not. But in this instance, if you're taking from the Axis powers, fine. But now we're in Switzerland. Yes. So having stolen a bike and cycled along the main road to Lugano, he then reported himself to the British consulate at around about quarter to five in the evening. That in and of itself is actually quite smart, because if Mm. you leave it late enough, it's then a bit too late to knock up the police if he does want to report them. You have to wait till the next day, find them somewhere to stay, and by that point, it's not worth the effort. Yeah, exactly. So he then spent the next day in Lugano, was sent for interrogation by Swiss officers nearby. 
And he states that they were very friendly and asked me all about the Libyan campaign and conditions in Solmona. There was one interesting point that was to come out of this interrogation because he was asked about how he managed to get hold of the various escape kit resources that he had on him. Now, as we've just discussed, it was the escape committee that provided him with it, but he says, I I do not know the source of the 300 lira the committee gave me. It was given to me inside the cover of a book on flowers. Now, we know from previous episodes with Helen Fry that MI9 were notorious for sending in escape equipment, particularly money, mm-hmm. hidden inside the frontispiece of books. So, from his description, I think we can safely make a connection and a link there between the money provided to him by the escape committee and that money being sourced by the escape committee from MI9. So having arrived in Switzerland at the start of October 1941, he was actually to stay there for quite some time. And he was to remain until the end of May 1942. Well, that's interesting. So pretty much, I mean, early October is six months, because he was captured at the start of April. Mm-hmm. So six months from capture in Libya to being in Switzerland, but actually only on the run for a few days. Mm-hmm. And then another eight, eight months. months. Yep. Wow. And he was to make his way slowly but surely across Switzerland, and he eventually says, I left Grindelwald on the 27th of May 1942 for Bern. Now, there's two points that are worth making for Grindelwald, because it's famous for two things. One is, it is the location of the Eiger. In fact, it is the north face of the Eiger. And two... It is also a name of one of the villains in the Harry Potter series. Right. So there'll be a lot of people who recognise the name Grindelwald, which of course was lifted by Rowling. Okay. So that is the reason why a lot of people recognise the name of Grindelwald. Either they're Harry Potter fans or they're fanatical mountaineers. Okay. Because of course the north face of the Eiger is very famous as of an extremely difficult climb. So from Bern, he was then sent to Geneva, where he was put into a Salvation Army hotel for two days. And on the 29th of May, two Swiss civilians collected him by car at three in the morning and drove him to the frontier near Geneva. Now, he was joined by two Poles in the party, and at the frontier, they crossed over a stream and walked for half an hour and picked up by another guide who took us to his house. After breakfast and the rest of a couple of hours, a third guide collected them and took them on foot to Anmarsh, where they left for train for Marseille at 4.30 that afternoon. Once they arrived in Marseille, they went to the cafe and got in touch with a Mario who took us to his flat. From there, a girl took them to the house of Dr. Nouveau. Now, Dr. Nouveau is actually quite a well-known character in the Marseille escape story. So having arrived in Marseille, they had to actually leave quite suddenly because of a scare on this escape line that they're now on. And so they were sent to the Hotel de Paris in Toulouse. And there he met a squadron leader, Wilkinson, a couple more Poles and a few more escape prisoners of war from Italy. So from Toulouse, the group then left by train towards the Spanish frontier. And on that train, there was also a Spanish guide travelling with them to collect them at the other end. So with the guide, they then walked into the mountains, so into the Pyrenees, And the party consisted of one of the Poles, two Belgians and a Briton called Napier. They were then picked up by another Spanish guide who took us over the Pyrenees. And the crossing was very strenuous. In fact, one of the Belgians gave out and Napier and Stuart had to carry him for about four hours. Wow. After 14 hours of walking, they eventually reached the small Spanish village of Rebus. 
Stuart then spent a day in bed there, which I don't blame him after walking through the Pyrenees for 14 hours. No, no, not at all. And at six o'clock in the morning the following day, the, the party then walked to a bus station and then from there the railway station at Ripple and got a train for Barcelona. He says that we had no difficulty on the way as we had a Spanish guide and had been given false papers. In Barcelona, they went to a cafe where a Belgian took them to the consulate and two days later, he was sent by car to Madrid and from there on to Gibraltar. Doesn't say exactly when he arrived in Gibraltar, but he was to leave Gibraltar on the 6th of July and he sailed from Gibraltar, arriving in the UK at Gurik on the 13th of July, 1942. So a week after he left Gibraltar. So he returned to the UK 10 months after his, his escape on the 30th of September, 1942, and 15 months after his capture, which was on the 7th of April, 1941. That's impressive. Mm. That's really impressive. Sadly, unfortunately, whilst we still don't really know where he came from or what his initials are, I mean, the only extra information we have is that you know, peacetime he was a shipping agent in the Suez Canal Shipping Company, and that was his residence. We unfortunately don't know anymore. I couldn't find anything on Commonwealth War Graves. He had an MC, Military Cross, mm-hmm. couldn't find the citation. I thought that might give something, whether it was for this escape or mm-hmm. whether it was for... What, subsequent service because i mean we're talking 1942 three years of the war left could not find anything and i would dearly love to know what happened yes yeah absolutely i mean you know we got we returned to our usual appeal of if anyone does know for any further information please do get in touch the only speculation i can possibly make is there is an absolute dearth of information about him he was in the intelligence corps is it possible that upon his return he entered the intelligence world? Could well be. And that is why we know nothing about him. It is pure speculation. He details a lot in his report, so he surely would have been interested to them, hence why we have the report. Well, he he is a trained intelligence operative in Mm. that sense. He may not have been in the intelligence world as we imagine it of spies, etc. At this stage... He was in military intelligence, quite literally in the army, but he wasn't yet in the spy world, for want of a better description. So, as I say, he is a trained intelligence operative. It is not beyond the realms of possibility that his training and ability and experience could be utilised, but by definition, we have no evidence to prove it. So it is speculation. If anyone does know more and can either prove or disprove a theory, Mm. please do get in touch. Otherwise, the only evidence that we have that Lieutenant H.E. Stewart existed is this escape report. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.